There we go. Any uh, kids, fifth grade and down? How are you all today? Good. Did you guys watch any good basketball games today? I know one that was really good. All right. There you go. Anybody else? All right. Let me ask you a question. Have any of you ever baked before? Yeah? All right. Bake, bake with your parents, your grandparents, maybe something at school. All right. What kind of things? What'd you bake? Cakes. Cakes. Brownies. Muffins. Oh, that's pretty good. Peanut butter fudge. Peanut butter fudge. That's a, see me later. All right, that's good. <laughs> huh? Cookies. All right. Anybody ever baked bread? No. Yeah? You have? Yeah. Well, yeah. Mom, t- Mom took you to work. That's all right. She works at a bakery. Um, what, what are the, what's one of the main ingredients in bread? Flour, yeah, that's a good portion of it. Anything else? What? Water. Um, Oven, you got to use the oven. Yeah? Wheat? The stuff that's inside the crust. Yeah, all right. Well, let me ask you what was yeast, huh? All right, let's look at these. You see these? Hey, I made these. Do you believe it? Yeah. Well, we haven't baked it yet. This is just the dough. All right? You made dough? I made dough. <laughs> That's right. So what's the difference between these? One's big. One's big. The exact same amount in both of these, okay? But which we got a difference here, right? This one's bigger. That one's smaller, this one's bigger. That one was made before the other one. But this one's taller. Huh? This, oh, not really. Not really. It's just the size of the bowl. What do you think makes this one bigger? Yeast. Yeast, right. There's this stuff you put in. You can smell it. Smell the weird smell? Yeah. All right. Now smell that one. That just one smells like flour. All right? Yeah. So this one has yeast, all right? And... The Bible calls yeast, it uses a word called leaven, all right? It's the same thing. Uh, it's a, and in the Bible, leaven represents sin. It's, uh, there's different symbolisms throughout the Bible, and in the Bible, leaven represents sin because guess how much yeast I put in it? I put three cups of flour in here. I put a little bit of water. I put a little bit of of oil and, and salt, yeah, a little bit, a little bit of milk, but I only put this little packet, I mean, it's this big, thin as could be, of yeast, and yet that little bit of yeast caused this, the change from that to this, and the Bible tells us that the leaven symbolizing sin, when it enters into, when sin enters into our life, 
when it enters into our church, it can cause problems. It can cause everything to get out of sorts the way it was, the way God would have it to be. So that's what we're going to sort of look at tonight. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We've been going chapter by chapter through 1 Corinthians. And Paul wrote to this church in Corinth. He uses the same illustration. There was one man there that had done something, and he refused to repent of this. He refused to turn from that. And this, this was, he was openly doing it. He didn't care what anybody else thought, and he was, he was doing this sin. So Paul compare, compares this man to yeast being in the church. And if this man wasn't corrected, it was going to cause problems. It would cause other people to sin. It might damage the testimony of, of the church as well. So tonight we're going to see how the Bible tells us, instructs us how to fix this type of problem in our church and in our life. Okay? Very good. You guys can have a seat. Let's give them a hand. All right. Well, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. As that yeast aroma maybe spreads across. I like that smell. I'm sure many of you do as well. Tonight, uh, we come to the subject that um, this is not an enjoyable one to, to preach on, to be honest with you. I love to preach on missions. I love to preach on the goodness of God, on the salvation that God has provided for us. But this is a necessary one. It deals with the life and the purity of the church. And as we go chapter by chapter, which is a good thing to do because uh, it allows us, it brings up topics that we normally would just maybe skip over if we had our choice. But this is one of those. We need to go through and see what God has for this. And Paul, Paul begins this letter uh, to the church of Corinth. Uh, at the beginning, in the first few chapters, he's encouraging unity. There is some division among the people. You know, one was after Paul, one was after Apollos, one was after Cephas. And he encouraged them to have unity from the division that they had created. They were the ones that had created this and focusing them on not man's wisdom, but God's wisdom. Then, last time we were together in, in 1 Corinthians in chapter 4, he reminds them of the example he had set for them. And he goes into great, uh, great detail there, and he, he speaks to them about the authority that he had in their life. And he ends then, the last part in verses 18 through 21 there, with a warning to them, not to be puffed up, don't be arrogant. And he sort of speaks to him as a father to a, to a child. You don't think I'm going to come? I'm going to come, and I'm going to straighten this situation out. So that's, that's where he, we left ourselves at the end of chapter 4. So in chapter 5, he gets right to the point. There's no beating around the bush here. There was, a, there was public sin in the church, and it must be dealt with and with using church discipline. Uh, discipline is either something we, we do to ourselves or it will be done to us. You either discipline yourself uh, using, using the other term for discipline, or it will be done to you. When a person uh, disciplines themselves, that they, means they learn to control something in their life. They uh, develop a practice in their daily life that will allow them to have that control. Disciplining yourself to have 
a quiet time uh, with the Lord, uh, to control your mouth, to uh, practice your piano. It doesn't have to be spiritual. You're disciplining yourself to learn how to play the piano, how to learn how to play whatever it is, to spend only a set amount of time doing whatever that, whatever that is. The purpose of that type of discipline is to better oneself, and we should all have this, to, to better ourselves, to control ourselves, to prevent hurting ourselves. That requires discipline in our life. Then there's the type of discipline that we'll speak of here in chapter 5. Think of a parent or a church uh, that is disciplining someone. means that they're trying to correct someone in a very harmful, sinful situation. Why? The aim of restoring them and helping them to grow. That's the key part to restore them and to help them to grow. It's not just to, just to have some correction on them. And in fact, when, if, uh, as a parent, when you correct your child, when they're disobeying, you do that in love, at least you're supposed to. You're disciplining them in love. And typically when that happens, when they've, when they've had some situations that's been very sinful and you are heartbroken when you have to do that. Your heart broken that it's come to that situation that you've had to step in and deal with this. But the whole purpose of it was not just to cause pain in their life. The purpose of your parents correcting you is to restore you and to help discipline you in a situation. So that's what we see here. The same is true for the church family. Church discipline isn't a time of gossiping. It isn't a time of dropping the hammer on someone. It should be a time of sadness on our part that, this, that it has come to this. It should be a time of soul-searching of ourselves and hopes of restoring a brother or a sister. Paul spends chapters 5 and 6, which we'll look at next week, uh, speaking with them on this topic. In chapter 5, he focuses the attention on what they as a church should do with public sin in the church. So let's look at this. Uh, the first we see here in verses one through three, they should have deep sadness. Just spoke of that. And let's read. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he hath that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I verily am absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that hath done this deed. All right. What's happened? Well, there is a man in this church, and he was with his stepmother. Uh, the reading of this makes it sound that he was possibly living with his stepmother. Now, based on how Paul addresses this man, uh, he is a member of the church. Uh, he never addresses the lady, so it's assumed she is not part of the church. Uh, that's probably uh, wise to, to see that. Uh, we have here a man, though, that is intentionally, get this, this is the important part, he is intentionally defiant of God's word, and he was publicly defiant intentionally defiant and publicly defiant. In verse 1, it tells us it is reported commonly. It is reported commonly. It is open to everyone. 
Everyone knows this situation. They see it, both in the church and probably out of the church. He is publicly defiant. Turn this down for a second. Also, by Paul's further instruction, we're to assume that there was no shame, there was no remorse of the sin when he was confronted with it. He, he is sticking with this situation, staying in this relationship that was sinful. This was a relationship that God had told the Israelites, if you go back into Leviticus, that this was a forbidden type relationship. In fact, in verse 1, he tells us there at the end of that verse that not even the Gentiles did such a thing living with their stepmother. It's, it's one of those things, it's against God's natural order. No one does this in any type of society. This was a sinful situation. So what's, the, this, what's, what's going on here? Yes, it's commonly known, but here's the problem. Verse two, it says, and ye are puffed up. Ye are puffed up, meaning the church. Everyone that's seeing this going on, and as this goes on in the church, you are puffed up. They weren't addressing it. In fact, more than not addressing it, they were, in, they were accepting it. Dare I say in today's words, they were being inclusive. They were being inclusive to this man's decision to live in sin. And as a church family, we are not truly loving a person, a brother or a sister, when we welcome their sin, boasting that we love them by accepting them as they are in this sinful situation. This was not a lost man. This was not a person that did not know Christ as their Savior. He was a saved man. He was a Christian. And as a Christian, he was being openly defiant of God and of his word. That's the situation here. We cannot be inclusive in those types of situations. We don't endorse sin. We are puffed up when we do that. And Paul said instead of being puffed up and, and all proud of themselves that, that they had, uh, they're letting this, this happen in the church, they should be mourning. They should have mourned in this situation because of this man with, that would be eventually is going to be removed from them. They should have been sad, deeply saddened that God was, was this dis, causing this discipline to be removed from the church. Oh, how we thought that we would have wanted them to come back. Oh, we wanted them to be restored to God and to the church. We should be mourning and be very deeply saddened in this. It should break our heart when someone in this church family, because of their sin, is forced to have church discipline. It should break our heart when we have to take action on the church family member when they won't repent of their sin. Amen? Amen. With deep sadness, Paul instructs them now in verses 3 through 5 to have deliberate judgment. Deliberate judgment. Turn to verse 3 if you would. For I, verily, for I verily, as absent in the body but present in the spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that hath done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you have gathered together, and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Those are some tough words. Verse 5 is, that is a difficult verse. But that is something we are instructed here in the Word of God to do. 
Uh, there's multiple books written on church discipline. You can, there's no shortage of them, and good men will differ on the level of application of what this means. But there are some things that we must agree on when we look at this. One is this, we should not and cannot judge the motives of someone. That is something that's up to God to declare and to judge on his own. But a person's conduct, we can. A Christian in the church that is defiantly sinning after they've been spoken to over and over, which we're going to talk about, that can be judged and that can be disciplined. The key, the key here is the fact that it was public. It was reported commonly. This was not someone going around snooping into another person's life looking for dirt. We are not to be doing that. This is not uh, dissecting every comment, uh, looking at a person's photo online and zooming in to find some little detail that you can make judgment on. This is not us playing as a church, he, he said, she said game in front of the, the whole church. That kind of life, it's not biblical, it's not loving, it's not fruitful, and it's not practical. We'll destroy the unity of a church when we do those types of things. But if a person is truly being sinful in a situation, you say, but yeah, 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 it's not public, but I know this is happening. If a person is truly in a sinful situation, I can guarantee you it will eventually come to light. God won't be mocked. A, a sinful situation will have fruit like we spoke about this morning, and it will come about and will, will be seen. So we, uh, that is not our motive to go hunting for something in each other's lives. That's not what loving Christian brothers and sisters do with each other. Jesus gave us a framework for how we're to start and where we're to start with this. Go over to Matthew chapter 18. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, Jesus speaking of uh, discipline in the church that would come, he says, Moreover, if thy brethren shall trespass against thee, go and tell his fault between who? Thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that, if the mouth, uh, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word should, may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever... Uh, we'll, we'll go ahead and end there, end of verse 17. Um, so we see here, God gives us this framework. First thing that we're supposed to do is we're supposed to go, if, if it's been something that's sinned directly to you, or if you're in a leadership position and it's a sinful situation that's publicly known, you're to go to that person. You're supposed to go one-on-one -on -one to that person. Not to everybody else, just to that person. Uh, five other people don't get to hear you discuss it and to spread that around. We go directly to that person. I've been guilty of that. All of us at some point in our life where we, could have, we should have just kept our mouth closed about a situation and gone directly to the person. But we go to that person humbly. We go to that person lovingly, trying to resolve, if it's between the two of you, and to restore your brother or sister. This is God's way. When Adam sinned in the garden the very first time, what happens? God goes to Adam. 
That's, that's the, the pattern that God states for us. Well, if that person does not change, they don't, they don't allow that situation for restoration, then we're to take witnesses. We're supposed to take other folks with us, wise people, all right? Not ganging up on someone. This is taking other people as witnesses to this to where the, the next situation trying to get, once again, restoration. Maybe there's, okay, other people know. Eventually, they, they, they might change their mind in that. If they continue to neglect, then we get to the point where we take it to the church. The guiding principle, though, is sin should be dealt with within the circle in which it is known. Uh, Brother Gary was very good at this. He, he taught me this principle, and, and uh, I'm so grateful for that. Sin should be dealt with within the circle it is known. If it is a private, if, uh, private thing, it should be dealt with privately. If, is it, a, if it is public, it's going to need to be dealt with publicly as well. And there's some reasons we'll go into in just a moment. But as you go through this, there's other, another thing that, that needs to be uh, known. In America, we have an attention span about this big, and it's getting less and less. I'm reading a book on Gen Z right now that uh, your attention span's even less than uh, your parents' attention span, which is even more than as you go up and up and up. We just, every generation, we have less and less of an attention span. So when we see a situation where somebody needs to be dealt with, when there's a sinful situation in our brother or sister's life, we want to see it happen right away. Well, this needs to be dealt with, right? That's just in the back of our mind. Uh, you know, with, uh, I know with, you know, with your child, when they disobey you, you want, I'm going to correct this and we're going to deal with this now. You know, that kind of situation. Well, that's not how it works in the church. All right, this, this is going to take more than two days. This, all of those things that happened there, you're not going to be like, okay, I met with him at one o'clock. He said no. So I brought my friends with me at three o'clock. He said no. Church service tonight is at 6.30. We're going to deal with it tonight. How effective is that? <laughs> do any of us think that way? Do, do any of us, our hearts change like that? We can't, be, we can't be the judge of sincerity uh, in a person's life. And so when a person does have repentance in their life, we sort of have to accept that. And we have to let time tell if they're being truthful to that. And we also have to give time on each of these steps. Each time we go to that person, each time something's there, we have to allow the Holy Spirit to work in their life. Because you're not the Holy Spirit, I'm not the Holy Spirit. And we need to allow God to work in their life. And then as leaders, we just have to have the wisdom of, okay, when's the next step? How long can we let this go on? And we have to take the next step. And like I said, you're going to have different people differ on that. I don't think there's a set time. I think it's really situation by situation based on how defiant that person is and what they're doing. So that's what we're looking at as we, as we consider this. Finally, though, when all steps have failed... And we're saddened by this. The brother or the sister decides to remain in their sin. And love and putting our feelings aside. We cannot be controlled by our feelings here. Action as a church, as a church, not as a member of the church, as a church must be taken. Verse 4 and 5, the church is to meet together. It says there, the church meets and the, the purpose of that is the discipline is expelling them from the church. They are no longer a member of the church. And Paul's words in verse 5 are bold and they are direct. 
to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Wow, that does not sound loving, but it is. When a Christian is removed from the umbrella of the church, they lose the protection of God's family. They lose the protection of God's church family. You may not realize it, you may not see it, but there are people in this church that are praying for you. There are people in this church that are watching over you. There are people through this week that will be thinking of you. You are part of the bride of Christ. When you become a member of Friendship Baptist Church, you are a member of the bride of Christ. God watches over his church. The people within the church do, and God watches over his church. This person must be, is, is leaving that umbrella and they're being surrendered over to the world, specifically Satan and his arena. What happens there? The person that will not repent will now have the natural recourse or the natural course of what is going to happen with sin in their life. Paul says the destruction of the flesh is the result we're warned by God over and over to away from certain sins. And there's a reason, because sin is destructive to your life. Yes, it might be fun for a moment, for just a season, but it is naturally destructive to us. The old phrase, choose to sin, choose to suffer. It's going to come about. Now, our loving side pops up, and we think, that, think does it have to come to that? Well, this wasn't our decision. And remember also, we just talked about Matthew 18. There were all these steps. Time was taken. We've loved, we've tried to get there to that person, and time was taken to restore them. But ultimately, when we do not follow God's discipline, we as a church are being sinful ourselves by not following what God has instructed us to do. And that's what we have to do. And when we remember this, we have to think of some other things. I mentioned this this morning. This person is first still a Christian. They're still saved. They're still a child of God. God loves them. God still loves his child more than, the more than you do, more than we do as a church. And here's the other one that goes along with the destruction of, of, their, of their flesh. God will continue to chastise his child. Chastisement is divine punishment that God puts upon us that the, with the intent of waking up his child to their sin. You know, the, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the prodigal son said that he came to himself. As he's sitting there eating husks with pigs, he came to himself of how great his father was. God allowed things to come into his life and that defiance that, that he had and it allowed this chastisement to eventually wake his child up to, I need to come back to my father. And God will allow this to occur in this person's life. This is not a misunderstanding or a misinterpretation of this because we see in three verses, in verse five he says, deliver such. In verse seven he says, purge out. And in verse 13 he says, to put away. They're to be removed from the church. All of this is after, only after Matthew 18 is attempted with prayer, with tears. And that is why we should have mourning in our life. 
That is why Paul tells us to mourn that this has to happen. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, we have no right to force someone out of our church family. That's a very American thing to say. (laughs) That is not biblical. Uh, I don't say it flippantly, but you're wrong in that. Verse 4 says, look at this. This is done in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are doing this when this has to occur under the authority of our Lord and Savior. And that is why it has to be carried out. Because our Lord has instructed us to do that. If that is true, and it is, consider then how important it is to be a member of a local church. How important does God see the membership of a local church? See, that is something that is going by the wayside in America, to be a member of a church. But God sees us, we're under this umbrella, and we're under the protection of that, and we're under the, the, the authority of that. That's very important. It has nothing to do with me as a pastor. That has everything to do with what the Word of God and how God sees the church. Without it, God's structure for the growth of us as Christians, it's torn down. Pieces of it, when we don't have membership, pieces of it can't be what it's supposed to be. So in deep sadness, the church is to make a deliberate judgment. And after making the judgment, we are to take, in verses 6 through 13, decisive action. Decisive action. Let's read in verse 6. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump as ye are unleavened. For even, as, even Christ, our, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote unto you in an epistle not to accompany with fornicators. This is a letter he wrote prior to this. Yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or, or with adulterers, for then must ye needs go out of the world. But now I have written unto you uh, not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, or covetous, or adulterer, or railer, or drunkard, or extortioner. With such an one know not to eat. For what, I have, for what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within, but them that are without God judgeth. Therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. All right, decisive action here. Why is action needed to remove the rebellious member? Paul introduces this example, as we talked about with the kids, of leaven. This is very Jewish. All right, this is a very a Jewish example to the church. It goes all the way back to when Israel uh, as, was just forming as a nation and they were slaves in Egypt. The last night of the, uh, the, last night of the plagues, the last plague that God sends upon Egypt to get his people out so that they can become this nation to remove his people, God gave the instructions for a meal the Passover meal. The night was the night of the Passover where the blood was shed of a lamb and it was put on the doorposts of the home and then the death angel would go through the land, killing the firstborn of every family, of every bit of livestock that did not have the blood over the door. 
This is the example. It's a picture of what Jesus Christ would eventually do for us, that his blood would cover us and we would not die in our sin. But in that meal, they were instructed to not have leaven, not even in their household, but they were not supposed to put leaven in their bread because it was a symbol of sin. God just made, that's the example he used, all right? It was a symbol of sin. Just a little bit, as we said with the kids, just a little bit of leaven causes the whole thing to rise. And this man was considered leaven to the church. His sin was considered leaven to the church. His sin would eventually defile others in the church if it continued on. Look at our natural families. If we, uh, often we see a, a family that has a sin that dad had or that mom had, and it becomes a generational sin because it was never removed from the family. That little bit of leaven has affected the family for generation after generation. And we see this in the church. Well, if, if that's okay, if he's allowed it with that kind of sin, then this is okay or that is okay, and it, it looks to become acceptable. And when that happens, it actually weakens us as a church. It weakens who we are as members. It, it weakens our faith. It becomes a stumbling block to a new, new person that becomes a Christian. Those younger Christians, as sin appears to be, well, that must be acceptable. That must just be how Christians are. We're supposed to be examples to those younger Christians, are we not? And when we allow this sin, it becomes a stumbling block to them. And eventually, as we'll talk about next week, it destroys the testimony of the church. Oh, that's the church that blah, 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 this is going on. They know. People know outside. They might not be coming to our church, but they know what's going on many times, especially the bad things, because that seems to travel at the speed of light. Wearsby calls it a cancer that needs to be removed for the health of the church. And that's an accurate term. In verse 7, he says to purge out the old leaven. He's talking purge out this man, but also purge out the old leaven. The old would be remove those sinful ways that we had before we uh, came to know Christ. Therefore, in verse 8, remove the old leaven, but also remove, what's he tell us to also remove there? Malice and wickedness. Malice and wickedness. Now, there's probably other things here, but these are the ones as I was considering this and praying about this. When, when sin enters the church, some of us get angry about it. And that's okay if we don't allow that anger then to become hard feelings and bitterness towards somebody else. Well, this person was defending them, and this person was, this person, uh, we think we've we formed groups and teams, and we, you know, it's this team against this team. No, that's not what the church is supposed to be. And we need, to, we need to get out, purge out this, uh, this, this anger, this hard feelings and wickedness and malice. It can come, revenge can be part of that, and on and on it goes. And we're instructed, get rid of those and put these in. Put instead, replace it with sincerity and truth. Replace it with sincerity and truth in our life. It doesn't say that we're going to just forget it like it didn't happen. That's impossible. But live in the truth of, of it with sincerity in your heart, meaning restore unity within the church as much as possible. Restore the church family to what it needs to be with the sincerity and using the truth of God. 
Now he ends in verses 9 through 13. He ends with a reminder of the limits. There's a limit to this authority that the church has with, with church discipline. What is the church's authority to take this action? Well, verse 9, as I mentioned, Paul had written a letter to them prior. We don't know what it was. It's not recorded. It's not part of the canon of Scripture. And he warned them uh, not to be with people living in sin. But they sort of misunderstood that. He's talking about don't be around those people in sin in the church. Don't be with them. Uh, he was talking Christians living in sin. And then he points out in verse 10, and this is important for us, that it's impossible to not be around people in the world that live that way. Have you ever tried that? We're not supposed to isolate ourselves. We're not supposed to have little communes of Christians. God placed us in the world. We're supposed to be here in the world, and we're not, we're not to be there to judge them. And he's telling it's impossible. You, you need to go out. Uh, you need to do this, it says at the end of verse 10, or you would have to go out of the world. You'd have to completely escape from the world. But that's not possible, right? We know that. You can't control who's in your office, who's in the cubicle across from you. You, you can't do that. You can't, the person that's at the desk next to you in your class, you can't control that. You don't know what your teacher does uh, on the weekends. You don't know who's on your team. You can't decide that. Uh, you don't know who's in your club or your team or who owns the restaurant that's in your neighborhood that, and, and what they do with their life. You can't control that. And you don't judge them for what they're doing. If they're lost, they're going to behave like a person that's lost. We don't judge that. They sin because they're lost without Christ and they need salvation. We're to be a witness to them, not a judge of them. That's what he's trying to say here. There's a limit to the, that authority of Christian discipline, and it is not to the world. We're supposed to be separated, but in the world. As we said this morning, walking in the Spirit, being led of the Spirit. In fact, without being in the world, it is impossible to fulfill the Great Commission, living an unleavened life and sharing Christ with them, being different, peculiar to the world around us. Verses 12 and 13, he tells us to leave that judgment to him. God will ultimately judge the world. That's not our job. So when that person, that, you, that kid comes home with your, with your teenager or with your child, and you're like, oh man, look at that, and you're, you're judging the parent, you're judging that child, that's not our job. Doesn't mean we don't have wisdom and like, okay, I don't want my kid around this person too much. That's smart parenting. There's a difference there. But in verse 11 here, we see at the end, the church's judgment is limited to those in the church. Once the church has taken action, Paul then tells us to not keep company with that person. Deliver them. Don't be with them. Why? Well, for one thing, to let that removal from the church family sink into their heart, into their mind. Oh, that, this is real. I'm really not in friendship or part of Friendship Baptist Church anymore. And allow the Holy Spirit to work in their heart with that. It also is there to keep you from hurting yourself because you're going to hear a one-way conversation there, how we were wrong, and on and on and on and on it goes. And then you start feeling like you have to take sides. Hopefully, 
uh, if that person decides to go to another church, that that other church doesn't gloss over that they're under church discipline. This is another reason why church membership is so important. If someone was to try to join this church, we, we go to that church and we ask them. And if it's something that's legitimate church discipline, we have to respect that for the purpose that this discipline will have effect on them. If not, it has no effect at all. So that's important. Ultimately, the hope of all of this is that the rebellious Christian will be, what's the term? Restored. All of this. All of this is so that they will be restored. First, restored in their relationship with the Lord. That's first and foremost. Secondly, that their relationship with their church family can be restored as well. It's interesting. Uh, I have noted here in my Bible, uh, if you go to 2 Corinthians, you don't have to now, but read later. If you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, it appears that this man was restored to the church. And he's giving some instruction of don't take this too far. Allow him to be restored so he's, he, you know, he doesn't lose complete hope. So this, this was effective. In my life, in our church life, I've, I've watched some people be restored. And sadly, I've watched some continue in their rebellion to their demise. That person has to make that decision. And we have to be faithful to the word of God. As a church, I want us to know what to do in this case. But just as important of why we do it, my prayer is that we never have to face it. But that's naive. Would we not agree? In today's world, in any time in church history, that's naive. My second prayer is that we will handle it with God's purpose of restoration in that person's life for the person and for the preservation of the purity of God's church. So let us look to this tonight. Let us pray for those that are in that situation. If you are a person that is living in sin and you are defiant to the Lord, you need to consider this. Holy Spirit speaking to you. What will you do? The fruit of that will come about. And we need to repent. Turn from our sin and be restored. Let us pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And I thank you for giving us clear instruction on a very difficult subject in the church. Dear Holy Father, I ask you to be with those that are here today and if there are any that uh, might be here but living defiantly to you that uh, they would deal with this before it becomes public in, in, in the life of uh, this church and in their life. Let that relationship be restored. Help us as a church to be loving to those uh, that are hopefully coming and being restored and let us have the courage to do what you would have us to do. We thank you now and in Jesus' name, amen.